Happy New Year. So great to see all of you. So many returning faces. We are delighted to have you back. Uh, And we look forward to this season being together and studying the Word. We are in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Uh, This is a lesson and an outline that I would uh, hope that Not only would it bless you today, but I would hope that you would keep a copy of this outline in your Bible, uh, keep it in a place where you can refer to it, because this is a a lesson that is designed to explain why Jesus is who he is, and why Jesus can say there is only one way to the Father. Uh, And this is a lesson that the world desperately needs to hear. So uh, please keep the outline, make it a point of holding on to it. This lesson will be posted online uh, in 24 hours. You'll be able to get it, and you can download that as well. But this is a lesson that is pointedly addressed to a lost world and to so many people that really don't understand who Jesus is. And I know that many of you have this issue in your family. So turn to Gospel of John chapter 14. Let's begin with verse 4. And Jesus is speaking here to comfort his disciples. We is told that he is leaving, he's going away, he's going to die. Uh, and so Jesus, all of this relates to the idea, this is what I am, this is who I am, this is where I am going, and this is what my expectation is for you. John 14, verse 4. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Wow. I would say one of the most poignant, exclusive verses that you will find anywhere in Scripture. No one. I am the way. I am the way the truth. I am the life. Now, this is a verse that most likely uh, aggravates the world more than any other verse in the Bible. When you find people who have resentment towards us as Christians, inevitably, one of the things that will come up within a short period of time is, what is it with you people? Why do you think you are the only way? You have the only way to see God. Uh, What makes you so arrogant that you can say that? And so the answer for you is very simply this. This isn't my opinion. I'm giving you the words of God, Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus said. It's not what I said. I'm not opining on it. It's the words of our Lord and Savior. And you know, someday, good Lord willing, I hope to be able to get on the Larry King show if Larry lives long enough. Um, But the reason I say that is inevitably, you know that over the years, there have been uh, innumerable televangelists that get on his show. And inevitably, Larry will say, well, do you believe that there is only one way to God? And inevitably, you see so many of these televangelists waffle, right? Because they want to be politically popular. They want people to think they're reasonable. And so instead of giving the answer that I've just given, they give some kind of mush answer 
that's not reflective of what Jesus said. This is very clear, folks. This is it. It's not your Bible teacher's opinion. This is the word of God. There is only one way. Now, as we've studied this, we have gone through the, the five I am's. There are seven. We've gone through five so far. And I've made them. I put them in your outline so that you have them. Uh, Jesus has said this. And one of the things that they said about Jesus, and I cited that in the outline, is that the Jewish leaders said there's something different about this guy. He doesn't teach like the other teachers teach. He teaches with authority. Well, of course he teaches with authority because he's the son of God. He's God himself. He knows God, and he's giving us the way to eternal life, and that's why he teaches the way he does. And so look at some of the I am uh, statements that we've gone through. Hayes re referenced some of them this morning. Um, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Each of these is categorical and exclusive, yet none of them, none of them seems quite as exclusive as this statement that we're studying. I am the way and the truth and the life. Notice the. Notice the. Not a. Not a way. The way. One way. And so there's no misunderstanding. Jesus goes on uh, even further in verse uh, 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we're going to study this today. This whole idea of the exclusivity of Jesus and the way being the only way to come to the Father. Now, the world is aggravated and angered when they see these words and they look at us as Christians uh, as being uh, uh, falsely pious and walking around in a state of arrogance instead of understanding that these words are the greatest lifesaver that, that has ever been given into a lost world. And if you go back, and I'd like you to go back as you rethink this, to go back to Adam and Eve, the first man and woman in the Garden of Eden, and see what they had at the time that took place before they fell into sin. And they entered, they really had a threefold privilege with God. It was a, an amazing situation, threefold privilege. First, they were in communion with God. What does that mean? That means that they actually spoke with God. They talked with God. They communed with God because God walked in that garden. Uh, and this was all before sin brought the whole thing down. Second, uh, second, they knew God and the truth that flowed from him. Not only did they walk with God and saw God and commune with God, but they knew that he represented truth. They saw what he was and what he did in the garden, the very nature of the creation. They knew that he gave it to them and created them, and so they knew that there was truth in God. And thirdly, they possessed spiritual life. And what do I mean by that? I mean that God promised them that they would never die. As long as they lived by the precepts that God gave them, they would have eternal life until they disobeyed God. And here is the thing about God. God tells us how he expects us to live. He lays out the precepts, and he makes it very simple. And he did that there in the Garden of Eden. Turn, if you would, just so you, you have a reference point, to Genesis chapter 2. 
Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. That's how God is. You will live forever. You can do everything in the Garden of Eden, but if you go here and you, you trespass my will, then what will happen? You will experience death. Uh, and that is the human condition we have today. We have death. We have death in the creation. We have death. All of us in our DNA, we are all, as we come out of Adam and Eve, all of us now are exposed to suffering physical death. God never intended that for the creation. But instead, we disobeyed God. We came outside of his will. And so there it is. We suffer death. And so the beauty of Christ's claim is that it is a divine answer to the problem of death. It is a divine answer to the problem of not knowing God's will, not knowing truth. God has given humanity the antidote for the poison of sin. God loved us so much that he bankrupted heaven to send Jesus Christ. Let's understand that. He bankrupted heaven. He said God himself to this world to die on a cross in order that we would have a way to overcome death. And so Jesus becomes the answer, really, uh, to these issues. Uh, and at the end of, the, of his earthly life, the, the disciples now, and it's amazing, because they walked with him for three years, and I say this to you, that you should have patience with your children or other family members who maybe don't get uh, the Lord the way you get the Lord and are not walking in the same kind of light that you are. And here they were, they walked for three years, and yet look at the questions that, that they ask. Peter asked first, where are you going? Where are you going? In, in, in uh, chapter 13, verse 36, and a few moments later, Thomas asked the question slightly differently. Lord, how can we know the way? How can we know the way? And that is when Jesus gives the exclusive statement, I am the way. And so even though they were with him for three years, even though they, they were with him every moment of the day for all that time, they still didn't fully get it. But we know that in a short period of time, they will really get it. Uh, and get it in such a way as that they will give their lives up for Jesus Christ. And so in each of the cases, uh, Jesus is the answer to the problems involved. Is there alienation from God? He is the way. Is there a, new, a need for illumination, understanding? What does God want from us? Jesus is the way. He is the truth. Uh, is death the issue in your life? Are you afraid of death? You understand that death is coming. Well, the answer to that is Jesus. Jesus will take that fear of death away and give you the answer by way of eternal life. So when Jesus uses the expression, quote, the way, that really relates to several issues. The way really uh, infers and implicates the fact that there are two points, a beginning and an end a starting, and a conclusion. It is a path from one status to another. That's the way. The way is a journey. The way is a walk. And Jesus is giving us the path to go from total sin and ruination 
and death to walk in a life that will lead you to affirmation and peace and love and finally life eternal uh, with, with God the Father. And so God sent Jesus to enter into a covenantal relationship with humanity so that we become one with God through Jesus Christ. When we accept Jesus Christ, when we accept him and become part of Christ, effectively we are bonded on to the body of Christ. When God sees us at that point as we are Christians, he no longer sees you individually. He sees you as part of the body of Jesus Christ. And that is why that is why our sins are forgiven. They're forgiven because we are bonded onto the body of Christ. Now, we will never be holy in and of ourselves, but through the filtering lens of Jesus Christ, God sees us as holy. And I want to give you a couple verses here to expound on that. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulation that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away nailing it to the cross. What does that all mean in simple English? It means this, that the law made it evident that you would not live up to it, that the law would sentence you to death. The idea of the law lifting you up and saving you is nobody was ever saved by the law. The law was designed to have you say, Lord, save me. Lord, I can't live this way. Lord, I'm weak. Lord, I need your help. I need your redemption power. And when you do that, then the law has done what the law should do. But to lift up and say, we have the law. We live by the law. Uh, we are the chosen people. You've missed the point. But God doesn't want that. And so God made it very clearly that Jesus was the very aspect needed in order for you ultimately to complete the law, because Jesus completed the law. And when you become engrafted onto the body of Christ, as you do, when you accept him, then you, through Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, have completed the law and you are forgiven. Look also, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 16. Actually, I'll start with 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Wow. 
In other words, what God is saying to you, not only has he forgiven your sins, as he washed those sins away, he's also saying he will not remember those sins. And I can tell you, based on the class that I had this morning, that this is a big deal. That there are a lot of us as Christians who have, have given our hearts to Jesus and who recognize that God has washed our sins away, and yet we have not forgiven ourselves. We go back and ruminate over sins that we've, come, that we've done in the past. We go back and chide ourselves and hold, us, hold ourselves up to derision and beat ourselves over and over again for things that we should have done or done differently. And instead of recognizing that as Christians, God has washed the slate free. You cannot lead a triumphant Christian life if all you do is go around dragging the sins of your past. You think God wants you to do that? He's forgiven you. Now forgive yourself. That's what this is about. That's why the world needs to understand this. This was all that comes to you when you accept Jesus Christ. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. This is what it means. This is what it's all about. Total forgiveness and total removal of any indication of that sin in your life. So that when you see God face to face, you don't have to worry about him bringing up things that you did in your 20s or 30s or your 40s once you became a Christian. Move on. Move on. And I believe, honestly, that this is an issue that so many people struggle with. Really. The world is lost. They don't understand what the power of Jesus Christ gives them. You can't get this any other way. No other, there's no other faith, no other religion, no other medical treatment that gives you this. Let me ask you something. Think about the number of people that are suffering from depression. And I understand that depression has medical consequences. But I understand something too. How people would understand that if truly they, their past was wiped clean. How many people would live life in a different way? Really. You think about it. Think about it. How powerful that is. And so this is what it means as we understand what this is all about. Now, not only do we want to be justified to God, and that's how we're justified to God through Jesus Christ, but we want to live a life pleasing to him in this world. Let me explain what that means and why Jesus is the only way to that. You want to live in a world in which you receive the blessings of God. You're not going to receive the blessings of God unless you've accepted God. You don't think that your life is going to bear fruit unless you are within God, attached to the vine of God. You can't get those blessings. You can't get that fruit. You can't live a life in this world that will ultimately be a blessed life, getting the blessings of God unless you are firmly within the family of Jesus Christ. And that relationship, understanding that, leads ultimately to personal holiness. Now let me explain this. Don't go running out of here saying, oh, there's something wrong, I'm not a holy person. Obviously I'm not connecting to, to God in the right way. None of us is holy. Let's get that right, uh, right now. Uh, none of us uh, is holy. In fact, my father uh, was so uh, committed to that that you know the, the uh, great hymn, Take time to be holy. 
My father made us change the words to that when we sang it in church, to take time to behold him. Because my father maintained that when you focus on personal holiness, you will never be holy. You are not holy. You are flesh and blood. And even as a saved Christian, you're going to be subject to the ups and downs, the vicissitudes of life. And even though the Holy Spirit is there in your life, you will still fall, you'll still be subject to sin. But, but, here's the difference that the Holy Spirit lifts us up and empowers us. It allows us to live a life in accord with God's will, even when we fall and we're convicted and we see the light. And all of that gives rise to the blessing of a blessed life. All because you've accepted Jesus Christ. And so when you come to someone, you see somebody who's lost, who is out, who's depressed, who doesn't know where, where the next day is going to come. What they, what they need to know is what Jesus gives them. And you give them this, and you speak to them. And the second thing that, that Christ claimed is about the truth about the Father uh, is that anyone who has seen Jesus has also seen God. Go back to John 14. Look at verse 9. And this is a response to Philip saying, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Really, Philip. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Wow. How do you like that? If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God the Father. All right, there's so many people who walk around saying, oh, I really don't understand who God is. It's a creative force. It's just a spirit. Uh, I don't understand the sovereignty of God. Let me say it very simply, folks. Don't get your mind wrapped around those things. You've seen Jesus. You know who Jesus is. He walked with us for three years. He spoke at length about who he is. He was full of mercy and love and sacrifice. Jesus never did anything for himself. Jesus willingly went to the cross when he had the power not to do it. That is God. You want to know who God is? That's God. You see Jesus, you see God. You see God in his mercy, in his love, in his holiness, in every aspect of his life. That's who God is. And so when you come to times when you say, I don't understand why, why some of these horrific things happen in life. We just saw it this past weekend in Fort Lauderdale while evil comes in and it impacts our life. Look, folks, we live in an evil world. All right? We live in an evil world. Somebody once said to me uh, in reference to Columbine, how could God, how could God have allowed that sacrifice to take place, those murders in that school take place. And the response somebody made was, well, we took God out of the school first, didn't we? We took God out of the school first. And isn't that the answer in terms of much of the world? We've removed God. We don't want to be tied to God. We want to do our own thing. That's why this verse resonates. I don't like anybody telling me there's one way. I don't like people to tell me I am the only way. I like to have my freedom. After all, I'm an intelligent person. I can read. Why do I have to be tied slavishly to this one thing? Fine. That's where you want to go, and that's what you see in the world as the world devolves into sin. And so we blame God. You blame God when, in fact, the world is sold out to sin. 
and evil and Satan in so many ways, you understand it. And yet there's the lifesaver. There's the lifesaver, Jesus Christ. And so you want to know who God is? Jesus tells you who God is. You see him in all of his personality, in, in all of his emotional strength, in all of his giving, in all of his mercy. That's who God is. Full of goodness, full of blessing, willing to sacrifice himself so that you could have life eternal. And the third part of this issue with, with uh, understanding what truth is about is Christ's claim to be the life. Now the entire Bible bears witness to the fact that man is spiritually dead. Started in the Garden of Eden and it continued on for the next several thousand years that man is spiritually dead. Man does not walk with God. Man does not know God. Man does not have godly tendencies. Man does not aspire to anything that God would aspire. Man listens to self, to ego, to self-satisfaction, to raising myself up. What can I do to please myself? What can I do to, that would address my own personal needs? It's about me, not somebody else, not some outsider. It's about me, 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 me. That's how the world lives. That's the essence of how the world lives. Self is the center of our existence. Uh, and so if you want to see the truth about God and how God views that, turn to Luke 15. Luke 15. Verse 21. This is Jesus' story. This shows you how God the Father views the coming back to God, repentance, how God acts when we repent, how God acts when we bow in submission and sorrow for what we've done, where our lives have led us. And you look here, beginning of verse 21. The son said to, the, to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate it. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You want to see how God views you coming to faith? How God views you coming back home? Does he talk about you're a loser? You're a loser? You took the money you weren't entitled to? You went out, you wasted it all, you weren't entitled to it. You effectively took it from me. And now you have the nerve? You have the nerve to come back here? You ought to go out to the pig sty. I don't want to see you, but what does God say? God says, I love you. I'm so happy you're back. I've forgiven everything that you've done. I have forgotten about it. It's already left my mind. Put a robe on him. Give him a ring. Let's have a celebration. That's God. That's what you get with God. That's what these verses are about. That's what salvation is about. This is what the world has no idea what we know about, about Jesus Christ. Everything that I've given you here is what you get with Jesus Christ. And so you see this here. You see how, how, how God acts uh, to us when we come back and we give him our life. And that's why I love that scene on the cross. When the thief turns to Jesus, we call him the good thief. 
Well, he turns to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me today in your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day, today I say unto you, you shall be with me in paradise today. And what does it mean to Jesus say, whoa, it's too bad we don't have some water. I'd like to see us have a communion service. We got to go through some catechism. I got a lot of questions for you. All right? I got to test you. I got to test you. No, what does Jesus say? Today. Now. Why? Because what you see is the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, remember me. All that means, Father, I know you are God. I know you are God. I give you what I have, God. I accept you as God. And Jesus says, you're saved. You should remember this when you go out and impact the world. You don't need to memorize a whole set of verses and give it to somebody and make them go by rote, A, B, C, D. Do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, you're saved. Now live your life. Live the rest of your life in conformity with that. Submit yourself to God every day. And we'll talk about that in other verses as we get to it, what, what it means to have fruit in your life, to be planted within, within the vine of Jesus Christ. But that's ultimately, ultimately the statement of what this is about. And so Jesus finishes this poignant statement, this exclusivity of verses, by saying there is no other way to God except through him. Oh, oh, Jesus, you had me for a while. You had me, but now you've kind of turned me off. You know what I mean, Lord? You've turned me off. I like to be able to use my intellect. I, I can appreciate you're great, but I know that there are other great things. And here's the thing, folks. That's a dead end. That's not a way. That's a dead end. And there are verses that corroborate that. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 11, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. What does that mean? It means this. There is only one foundation, Jesus Christ. Don't build your foundation on your intellect or on your power or on your possessions or on your personality or about your effect to win people because you're such a charismatic person. Don't build your foundation on that. The only foundation you can build upon is Jesus Christ. In every aspect of your life, Jesus Christ. And when you build your foundation on Jesus Christ, all these other things will eventually be tested. Doesn't matter whether they're costly jewels or wood, hay, and straw. They will be tested, and there will come a day when all of them will be consumed because they're not worth the paper it's printed on except the foundation of Jesus Christ. Turn also to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. 
verse 11. Let me set this up for you. This is Peter and John now appearing before the Sanhedrin. They'd been warned, the Sanhedrin, the elite of the Jewish religious community. The, the elite, the power elite, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They'd been warned, don't preach in this name. Don't go around preaching in this name of Jesus. We don't want to hear this stuff about there's only one way. Knock it off. And here they are, and at this point, this is about uh, two to three months after they had had this discussion with Jesus. The day of Pentecost has come down. And so right from that, you look at what, the, what they say here is in verse 11 as they confront the Sanhedrin. He is, meaning Jesus, he is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cap stone, meaning the very foundational stone. 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. You think they got it? You think they got it? You think they learned what, what is the way? Where are you going? They got it. They got it. It took a while. They got it. They got it so well they would give their lives up uh, because of Jesus. And so you see this. And finally, turn to 1 Timothy, please. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. There is one God and there is one mediator. Only one way, only one way to speak to God through the mediator. Only one way. You don't need a priest or a confessor or a confidant or a journal or any scientific uh, palliative. Only Jesus Christ is the way to God. Only Jesus Christ is the ultimate mediator. And here is the point. God is the source of all spiritual blessings. Now, if you wonder, and why, in some ways, you are not getting the spiritual blessings, and by the way, I am, I am specifically saying spiritual blessings. I'm not talking about material blessings. God will give you what you need, not necessarily what you want. Look at what Jesus, how Jesus prayed. All right, give us this daily bread all right, lead us not into temptation, not give me a big house, all right, or a big boat, or a lot of money. He doesn't see Jesus talking like that. It's an itinerant preacher, really, slept off and without any house, without any place to, to put his head down. And yet you understand that. That's how Jesus was, serving, serving those who he was around, giving everything that he had. And so you see that here in this, in this verse. That, that this is the only way, the one mediator that we have. This is what Jesus does. And so here's, let me, as I wrap this up, let me give you the point of how man likes to worship. How man likes to live. Paul spoke about this. There are three categories, effectively, that men, mankind, falls into. Uh, the, first, the first category uh, is 
those who worship nature, the natural theology. And you've heard these people. No, I don't know. I don't, I don't believe in a personal God. No. No, I, I worship, I commune with nature, the trees, the birds, the mountains, the rivers, the water. I commune with them. That's, how, that's become my God. Well, what a false God that is. That's a false God. You're going to worship and pray to a mountain? You're going to pray and worship and commune with a river? You think that river or that block of rock is ultimately going to answer your prayers and commune? This is false theology. The second way that the world likes to address it is what I call secular humanism. Secular humanism, meaning what? Meaning, I believe in the effectual goodness of man. Mankind is basically good. I want to be involved in the elevation of the human condition. I, am, I want to lift up mankind and effectively be responsible to elevating mankind. And folks, let me tell you this. Anybody that says that has not truly looked deep within their heart not truly look to see what's inside their heart because I told you I've made that voyage myself. I've looked deep within my heart and at the very center of it is darkness. Without Jesus Christ, there is darkness. And I have some personal experience with this issue because at one point I was the president of a very highly regarded elite uh, prep school in New Jersey for a number of years. And that school uh, decided that it would uh, incorporate an ethics curriculum into every grade from kindergarten right through 12th, an ethics curriculum, and it became basically Aristotelian ethics. Uh, and it was done so well, incorporated into every aspect of the curriculum. Uh, and and the, if I could give you a summation of what it really meant, it, you, you study Gyges' ring. Those of you who have read Aristotle, you know Gyges' ring. That was the ring that Gyges found that if he put it on his finger, he would become uh, invisible. And so ultimately the question was, how would you act if nobody saw you? What would you do? Uh, and we know from that experience that Gyges did some very bad things. And so the point of an ethics curriculum is that you study the moral precepts. These are the moral precepts. This is how you are to live your life morally. Here's what the rules and the regulations are uh, in order to have a good life. And one of the famous lines out of the Aristotelian ethics was, in order to have a good life, you have to lead a good life. Sounds good. Well, school was honored. I went to the White House. I, got a, I met the president and the vice president. We got a blue ribbon award. Uh, and yet I sat down with the, with the headmaster who had really put this whole curriculum together and I said, you know what, doctor? I said, here's the problem with the ethics curriculum. Without the grace of Jesus Christ, none of us can live up to these precepts. You may know the law. You may know the righteousness you may know the principle, and yet without the guidance of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit empowering you, giving you power, you can't fulfill these type of principles. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. And that's the problem. That's what we face. And so what you see here is an understanding of what Jesus gives you. Jesus gives you the empowerment to lead a blessed life. Not only are you going to face God someday because of what he did, but in this world, as you live in this world, for whatever time he has given you, 
you will have the blessings of Jesus Christ poured into you in the most magnificent way. Let's close and I'll continue it next week. Father, we thank you so much for the lesson that you've given us. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you, Father, that you've given us eternal life and, and even so, Lord, you've given us the chance to lead a life of blessing here. Lord, let us leave here today committed to send this and give this message to others. Don't let it end with us. Empower, embolden us, Lord, so that when we go out and we meet people, we can tell them who you are and what you mean to us and how you've changed our lives. Bless these dear people, Father. Protect them and bring them back safely to continue your word next week as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.